saved American coal. Nuclear energy. Natural gas. Hydro. Solar power. Wind turbines. We're becoming a monumental exporter of natural gas. This boom in the United States is not a bubble that's going away. The oil's still there. I'd rather pump it from another country and save ours, and then when the rest of the world runs out, hey, guess what? We can yeah. still turn on our lights. We've run into a problem where we have constraints, where there are limits now. The new phase we're going into related to the exhaustion of these resources, there's no replacement. This is a one-shot affair, and we're unprepared for it. Really, we do not have very much more time to get a handle on this problem. It's better to get to a renewable future, a sustainable future, sooner rather than later. Get there before we do the environmental damage, not after. You're listening to the Energy Basics mini-series from the Energy Transition Show. I'm your host, Chris Nelder. This is part four of our mini-series on the basics of energy. In the first three parts of this mini-series, which you can find in episode 119, we explored some foundational concepts about energy, including describing what energy actually is, illuminating the laws of thermodynamics, and outlining why we have to convert energy from one form to another to support some of the ways that we use energy. In this episode, we're introducing the next three parts, which dive a little deeper into electricity, what it is, what the units of electricity are, all the ways that we generate it, and how we manage power grids. In keeping with our mission of making as much content available for free as possible, we're making the first part of this set of three mini-episodes accessible to all, while the second and third parts will only be available to full Energy Transition Show members. To hear the other episodes in this educational mini-series on the Energy Basics, as well as the rest of our full catalog of full-length episodes, point your browser to energytransitionshow.com and click the Become a Member button. And now let's meet our instructor for this episode. Dr. David Murphy is a professor of environmental studies at St. Lawrence University, where he examines the intersection of energy, the environment, and economics with a focus on energy transition. Much of Dr. Murphy's recent research and teaching is focused on the energy transition, as is his online textbook titled Renewable Energy in the 21st Century. He'll be drawing upon that textbook in this episode, and those who are interested in checking it out can log into our website and find the link to it in the show notes for this episode. Dave has been a longtime friend of the show and was the first professor, to our knowledge, to start using this podcast as a teaching tool in his classes. He also appeared in episode 100, in which he explained how he uses the show and some of the challenges he has found in teaching energy transition. So I'm really pleased that he was willing to teach this module of our Energy Basics series. All right, with that out of the way, let's get started. What is electricity? We can't sense it, except when we get shocked, so it's hard to understand. How is it generated? We learned in episode 119 that it's produced through the conversion of some other fuel in a traditional power plant or through the action of renewable generators somehow. But what is the physical form of energy, and how does it move across power lines? How do we measure it? What's involved in managing our power grids? And once we've used electricity, where does it go? In this set of episodes, we're going to introduce electricity, which in many ways is the foundation of energy transition because renewables directly generate electricity without burning fossil fuels, and therefore without generating the carbon emissions that drive global warming. In the first part of these three mini-episodes, we're going to start with what electricity is at the physical level and introduce some of the units that we use to measure and describe energy, units that you'll come across a lot as you learn more about energy, like watts, kilowatts, volts, amps, alternating current, and direct current. Then in the second part, we'll present an overview of how all sorts of power generation technologies work, from conventional thermal power plants to renewables. We'll also refresh some of what we learned in the first three parts of this series about 
about why we use electricity as an energy carrier and introduce some of the ways that we manage electricity. And then finally, in the third part, we'll start exploring how power grids are designed and managed. So let's get right to it and let Dr. Murphy introduce us to the mysterious world of electricity. Dr. Murphy, what is electricity? Thanks, Chris. Electricity is the flow of electrons through a conductor, like a wire. Electricity has two main attributes, voltage and current. Voltage is the difference in electrical potential between two points and is measured in volts, which is nice to know. It's very convenient. Current is the electrical flow, which we measure in amperes or amps for short. Electrical potential is a little confusing. It's defined as the amount of work required to move a charge within an electrical field. And since electricity in general is kind of confusing, we tend to explain it using metaphors. And the metaphor we use to explain electrical potential is gravity. We all know what gravitational potential energy is. If we take a rock and suspend it, I don't know, 10 feet in the air, we have stored some energy in that rock. And when we release that rock, that energy is converted to kinetic energy when the rock falls. Well, where did the stored energy in the first place come from? Someone or something had to lift that rock the initial 10 feet, right? Electrical potential is similar, except instead of the rock moving, we are dealing with charges. And instead of the gravitational field acting on the rock, we have an electrical field acting on the charge. So how strong the electrical field is and how large of a charge there is will determine how much electrical energy potential there is. This is why high voltage can really mean high energy. Electricity can also sometimes be better understood through an analogy to plumbing, second metaphor. The voltage is analogous to water on top of a building. The height and size of this tank will create water pressure in the pipes below. The higher and bigger the tank, the more pressure. As the water moves from the tank down through the pipes, the potential energy in the water is decreased until it finishes in a tank at the bottom of the building. If the two tanks were at the same height, then there would be no pressure and therefore no water flow. Likewise, the higher voltage, the more pressure there is to push electrons through a wire. If there is no electrical potential difference between one end and the other, the electrons will not move much, like the water doesn't move between the two tanks at the same level. Current, on the other hand, is analogous to water flowing through those pipes. Larger pipes can carry more water, while smaller pipes can carry less. So we can think of electricity through metaphors. The voltage is like potential energy, a concept that we discussed with Dr. Jaramillo in part one of this miniseries. The raised rock in your explanation, or the water in the tank on top of a building, has potential energy that could be released if the rock were allowed to descend, or the water were allowed to flow down into a lower tank. And that's like voltage. Allowing that voltage to flow from a state of high electrical potential to a state of low electrical potential provides the current, the flow, which allows that potential energy to be released least. The larger the current, the faster the flow. So electricity must have both the electrical potential, the voltage that wants to flow, and the actual flow, the current. We'll be using more metaphors, I'm sure, to understand electricity as we go on. But before we move on, let's explore the fundamental nature of electricity. A moment ago, you described it as a flow of electrons through a conductor. But what's an electron? An electron is a negatively charged particle in an atom. It makes up the electron cloud. Okay, so it's literally right down there at the atomic level, mm -hmm. and electrons can move, right? That's right, yeah, they flow around, especially in conductors. Like a wire would be an example of a conductor. That's right. 
Okay. So the electricity that actually does work for us, like powering a computer or moving an electric vehicle down the road, actually consists of a flow of electrons, these negatively charged particles. And we describe this flow of electrons using two specialized terms, volts, which describes the amount of potential energy in the electricity, and amperes, or amps for short, which describes the current or the strength of the flow. Is that right? These two measurements, volts and amps, describe how much electricity is flowing at any given time. So power is the product of volts and amps, and we measure this in watts. So volts times amps equals watts. It's expressed mathematically as P for power equals V for volts times I. We use I to denote amps just to be confusing. So it's P equals IV. Therefore, we can see that since power is a product of both the current and the voltage, it's convenient because we can deliver the same amount of power in various ways. For example, if you want 10 watts of power, that can be delivered with one amp and 10 volts. Or conversely, we can deliver that same amount with 10 amps or one volt. Or we can deliver it again with five volts and two amps. So there's multiple combinations to deliver the same amount of power. The point that is important to remember though is that neither can be zero. You have to have voltage and current for there to be power. It's also good to understand fundamentally what the difference is between energy and power. And this is something my students really struggle with. So it's okay not to understand the difference right away in the beginning. Energy is defined as the capacity to do work, which we sometimes measure in joules. That's the preferred unit. Power, on the other hand, is energy per unit time, like a joule per second, delivering one joule for one second. And that's actually what a watt is. A watt is one joule per second. So another way to think about this is that power is a flow, whereas energy is a stock. If we think of water flowing into a bathtub, we could say that the amount of energy is the water in the tub, whereas the power is the flow of water into and out of that tub. To put this metaphor in the context of electricity, the rate of flow of water would be dependent upon the water pressure, that is the voltage, and the size of the pipes are like the amperage or the current. Ah, and here we are with the water metaphors again, which is useful because electricity isn't something, again, that we can hear or see or smell. And we need some way to understand this mysterious force that we can't actually sense. And as it turns out, electricity does flow around and acts a lot like water. As you said earlier, it flows in wires toward the lowest electrical potential, just as water flows in pipes or waterways flows toward low spots due to gravity. And just to reinforce the point, we can understand amps and volts by thinking about as you said, a water pipe. The diameter of the pipe is like amps, and the water pressure in the pipe is like volts. To put another way, if you had a needle-thin, very high-pressure stream of water, that can actually have enough energy to cut through rock. There are things called water knives. Just as a thin wire can carry a lot of electricity if the voltage is high, whereas a sewer pipe with a two-meter or six-foot diameter could knock a person down if the pipe is full, even if the pressure is really low and the water is barely moving. The old joke in electricity goes, it's not the voltage that kills you, it's the amps. <laughs> That's right. And we're defining energy as the capacity to do work. And work in this context has a very clear meaning. It's the transfer of energy from one form to another or one place to another. Work in physics is defined as force times distance. Work equals force times distance. 
the precursor to all of this is where does energy in general come from? And it all is derived back to the four fundamental forces. So gravity, electromagnetism, strong and weak nuclear force. And it's this relationship between energy and power that derives the watt hour, or more commonly used, the kilowatt hour. That's what we usually see on our electricity bill. And the kilowatt hour is the unit of energy we most commonly are talking about when we deal with electricity. I mentioned joule before as being a unit for energy. The kilowatt hour is also a unit of energy, but we use the kilowatt hour when we're dealing with electrical energy more often than we use joule. It can also be confusing because the kilowatt hour, and that's kilowatt dash hour, it's not kilowatt per hour, but the kilowatt hour is used to define energy, but the kilowatt, that is the kilowatt without the hour part, is actually a unit of power. So a kilowatt hour is the amount of energy delivered by a one kilowatt source over the course of one hour. So the kilowatt hour is actually a stock. It is an amount of power flow over some unit of time, and therefore it's a unit of energy. So the real question is, how does this energy versus power discussion relate to the energy world? Well, generators such as gas-powered combined cycle facilities, wind turbines, etc., they all are designed to produce a certain amount of power, usually called its nameplate capacity. And it's called such because the generators themselves, and I've seen this on all of them, right nailed to the outside of them is this metal nameplate that describes the specifications for that generator. This nameplate capacity is basically the power the generator is meant to produce if utilized at full capacity. For example, we have a small hydro facility near us. I bring my students in renewable energy there every time I teach it. It has three 10 megawatt turbines. They're about 90 years old. And the nameplate from GE is bolted right on the side there. And it says 10 megawatts and actually gives a bunch more information about rotation speed and that kind of stuff too. The last item that comes up quite a bit is the concept of capacity factor. This is a, If you study the energy transition, you're going to come across these terms, nameplate capacity, and then there's another one, capacity factor. Well, what's the capacity factor? The capacity factor is the fraction of energy that a source could produce if it ran at full power, full time. So if a generator only runs for, let's say, 12 hours a day at full output, it doesn't run at all for the rest of the day. We could say that it has a 50% capacity factor because it only runs half the time, 12 hours out of 24. And if it only runs at half power half the time, then its capacity factor would be halved again at 25%. The capacity factor, in other words, is like kind of an estimate of how close to the theoretical power production that that generator could produce. So how close to the actual maximum could this generator produce? How close does it actually get over some period of time? It's also important to keep this clear, and this is something my students get confused as well, is between capacity factor and efficiency. Efficiency is something different. Well, let's look at coal as an example. Coal-fired power plant will usually have a very high capacity factor, above 80%, because it runs continuously throughout the year. It's designed to do so. These are baseload power generators. They're running all the time when they go down. It's a big deal. It takes them two or three days to come back online. So they basically never want to shut these things down unless they have to. So they're running close to the theoretical maximum all the time. On the other hand, the efficiency of a coal-fired facility is about 35%. And that is a measure of how much of the primary energy, how much coal going in, is converted to electricity. So if you have one joule of coal, you get 0.35 joules of electricity coming out of the power plant. 
So just because a generator has a certain nameplate of power capacity doesn't mean that it delivers that much power all the time. Renewables, on the other hand, tend to have lower capacity factors than, than say, coal. These are numbers that are hotly debated in the literature. But solar PV, for example, can be between 15 and 20% capacity factor. But the flip side is your fuel is free and doesn't emit carbon. So there are some significant upsides there. And as we mentioned in episode 119, because no one has to actually go collect the solar power and then put it through a generator and have some of it lost, we don't really worry about the efficiency when it comes to things like solar and wind because the fuel is free. That's exactly right. Okay, so now that we understand that electricity is a flow of electrons, let's introduce another fundamental concept, which is exactly how it flows, the type of current. And there are two major types here. There's alternating current, or AC, which is the type of current that we have on our power grids and that we have in the electricity that we get out of a wall socket. And then there is direct current, or DC, which is the type of current that we get out of a battery. Why don't you explain the difference between these two types of electric current a little bit more? Sure. So there's a big history here between direct current and alternating current systems, going back to Tesla and Edison battles um, a long time ago. But direct current is called such because there is a constant flow of electrons in one direction. Direct current results when the voltage on a circuit is kept constant, causing the electrons to move in one direction from the negative terminal to the positive terminal, and they just keep flowing in that direction. Batteries are a perfect example of this. As all the electrical charge is deliberately stored on one side, and when we connect them to a circuit, the electrons flow out of that one side to the other side. That is a direct current system, pretty easy to understand. The second type is a little less intuitive, and it's called alternating current. And it's named such because the current switches direction or alternates direction at some preset interval. The alternating current is created by changes in polarity at the voltage terminals. And we're going to get into this in a little bit about generation. But compared to a battery, when one terminal is always negative and the other one's always positive, a generator that produces alternating current has a voltage source that switches at some preset interval. And because it switches, the polarity, the current flow, and the directionality switches as well. And that is what creates the alternating current. That's why we define it as alternating. And we should probably point out, too, that renewable generators like solar actually produce DC electricity. So then that power then has to go through what's called a converter to turn it into AC, which is what the grid wants. So there are ways to change AC to DC or vice versa. But what is the point in AC switching polarity like that? Like, what's wrong with just having direct current? Why shouldn't current just flow in one direction? And if it's switching back and forth, how does it actually get anywhere? Right. So the main advantage of an AC system is voltage regulation. And that is that we can use transformers to change voltage up or down in an AC system. But in a DC system, the voltage is preset at the terminals. So it's less flexible. Voltage regulation is necessary because high voltage allows for greater power. Remember the equation, power equals current times volts. So if we can increase the voltage, we can increase the power. But high voltages are also kind of dangerous. It's useful then in our system to have certain lines that can be higher up and farther away and more secure that have high voltages and carry power over long distances. Those are these big transmission lines that we see scattered kind of throughout the country. And so what we do is basically step up the voltage to transmit it and then step it back down for more kind of distribution. We'll get to that in the later section. 
On the other hand, there are many products that we use that require direct current, electrons flowing one direction. So semiconductors, for example, which is seemingly is a larger proportion of all of our technology involves semiconductors, require direct current. And this is why a lot of our technological gadgets all have a converter as part of their charging utility that changes that AC to DC power so they can operate and just be functional. And this is also what our traditional thermal generators produce as well, AC power, that is, that we're going to discuss later. Right. So that little power cube that you plug into the wall when you attach your laptop or whatever you're trying to charge up, that power cube is actually converting the AC wall power to DC because that's what your device actually uses. That's what the battery in your laptop or your phone or whatever, it wants DC. So that's what that little cube does is it converts the AC power from the wall into DC, which is the opposite of what happens with an inverter in a solar system, which takes the DC power that the solar system produces and turns it into AC so that it can be shipped onto the grid. That's right. Yeah. And part of the battles in the beginning with Tesla and Edison about AC versus DC was this idea, this is a long time ago, mind you, but if you had a DC grid system, you'd have one voltage you'd have to have different lines for different voltages. And then the technologies that would utilize that DC in a home or something would have to be built for those voltages. Whereas now we can have one line, one distribution line that has AC step down the voltage and kind of use it in a bunch of different technologies. Obviously, a lot's changed in the century or so since that debate was occurring. But that was one of the, the arguments in the beginning. Right. So in the U.S. where our wall power is 120 volts, it's 120 volts everywhere. But it goes through a whole bunch of different voltages as it transits from a power generator, like a power plant, through these high voltage transmission lines and then makes its way through the distribution system, as we'll talk about in a minute, and gets to us as consumers. And we do that because when you have high voltage, you can send power over longer distances on thinner wires. And that becomes really important when you're trying to string a whole lot of heavy copper wire way up in the sky on transmission towers. So high voltage turns out to be very useful for transmission purposes. But we'll we'll get into that in the next segment. Okay, well, that concludes part four of our Energy Basics mini-series. We learned what electricity is and how it moves, and we learned some of the specialized terms and units that we use to describe it. Now we can move on to the next part and start learning how electricity works. That's it for this mini-episode of the Energy Transition Show mini-series on the Energy Basics. Even if you're an energy expert and you already know a lot of this material, we hope that you've learned a little something from this episode, or at least that you found it a helpful refresher. And as always, we want to thank you for supporting the show, because without you, it wouldn't exist. And remember, if you think your university or company could benefit from a site license, just go to energytransitionshow.com slash group options to see all our licensing arrangements and get started. And if you have comments or suggestions on how we're approaching this mini-series on the energy basics, don't hold back. I have no doubt that we could improve the way that we're teaching this material with some thoughtful feedback and input from students and educators alike. Just drop me a line at chris at energytransitionshow.com. And finally, don't forget to help us find new listeners by telling your friends and colleagues about the show and leaving us a review on iTunes. We depend heavily on word of mouth to build our subscribership, so thank you for spreading the word. Well, that's it for this episode of the Energy Transition Show. Thanks for listening. You can find our show archive and give us feedback and suggestions at energytransitionshow.com and follow us on Twitter at Transition Show. 
Our theme music was by Mike Sugar and Mark Burnfield, who you can find online at mikesugarmusic.com. The Energy Transition Show is a production of the XE Network. <laughs>